This podcast is recorded on Wurundjeri land. Our Stripes acknowledges the traditional owners of the land and pay our respect to elders past, present and emerging. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Hello and welcome to Our Stripes, the Richmond footy podcast that delves into the many and varied stories in and around Richmond Football Club. As always, I'm Rana Hussain here with my co-host Tiffany Cherry. Great to be here with a fabulous guest. Yes, very excited about this one. We have a cricket extraordinaire, <laughs> <laughs> Gold Logie Award winner. Richmond Nuffy, can we say that? Well, okay. Do, I'm interested <laughs> in this. What's a Nuffy exactly? I don't know. Even, is oh, yeah. that even politically correct? Also, I probably I'm not, but I'll Google it for you. I've also broken the fourth wall by speaking before I've been I fully introduced. I should probably just shut up. On that, <laughs> Biggest brain in the country. Oh, come on. Uh, <laughs> you would have seen him every night on your tally. It's Waleed Ali, of course. Where How are we? are we? Did we get... Nuffy. Nuffy? Yeah, and um, welcome, Well, It is wonderful to have you obviously no, we're here straight in, in, in Richmond. Uh, Nuffy is a noun. Uh, yeah. It is Australian slang, offensive, so they're offensive. probably not. Right. Apologies. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, a person with a... No, look, let's just say it's, it's offensive. So, so let's right. just retract oh, that. No, on that. Right? Okay, a person with a disability, particularly oh, no. intellectual. Yep. A person who is... Um, Stupid. My daughter actually tells me I'm allowed to use that word, so I nearly said silly, but yeah. it actually says stupid. Uh, slang cricket. Someone who, um, someone who, an obsessive fan of a sport, particularly of cricket. Right. So well, there, that so we so can that use that works. one. I feel really bad now. <laughs> no, I, well, no, that's fine. But I, it's no because I've actually this debate's going around because it's it come is. back as a term. It has. And and I'm trying to figure out whether it's come back as a term of endearment or so. If you're a nuffy. Is it just that you're passionate about a sport and you know a lot about it, or is it that you're just you? you Someone who is obsessed about, says yeah. that's what this says. But you know, there are people who are obsessed, but also really don't know anything about the sport. But I think that's probably the mayonnaise you're putting on it. You are. You don't think that's the way the term? <laughs> oh, potentially. Like yeah. it's very subjective, isn't it? I mean, I'm. You know, well, I don't if know. we're asking what exactly it is, then if yeah. it means footy obsessed. Yes. Then I would say that's accurate. That is absolutely yes, in true. In relation to you. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. Can I ask you about your first football memory? No, you're not allowed to. Okay, next. <laughs> what, what, uh, my should first have football known. memory. So my first football memory of all football memories mm. is actually being at home and seeing uh, Lee Matthews hold up the Premiership Cup in 83. And I remember not really, it was like, what is this? And my brother explaining it's the grand final and Hawthorne played Essendon and they're both really good teams and that's why they're there. And so I've got that image in my mind quite clearly. And, how old were you? Uh, so how old would I have been? Five? Four? Five? Mm-hmm. September. So it was after my birthday. So yeah, five. Um, and <laughs> so I remember birthday, that. By the way, oh, thank you. Week. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. So I remember that and I have since learned how tragic that is because. Of course, Richmond was in the grand final in 82 and proceeded to be um, chronically crap from 83. (laughs) So my first football (laughs) memory started that year. And so I I was born in exactly the wrong time. Like even if I was born a year earlier, I might have had a memory of Richmond in a grand final, which, of course, I'd never seen until 2017. So that's my first football memory Mm. and my first Richmond memory is of being at a game at the MCG against Melbourne. Mm-hmm. My brother took me and it was really rare. I didn't get to go to many games. We lived out in the suburbs um, and my brother only went sort of intermittently at that time. I don't know how old he would have been. He must have been like 15, 16. So, you know, getting going into the city by yourself was a big, big deal. deal yeah. yeah, and so I remember seeing that. And I can't remember anything about the game except a ruck contest. It's just got this frozen image in my mind. Who were the of a rock do you remember? Concert. I assume Mark Lee was one of them, I, but that's an assumption. Yep. And Melbourne, I don't know. I, I want to say someone Dwyer something, but that could also be a false memory triggered by a footy card that I later had. You <laughs> know too what I mean? early for Jim Steins. Yeah, yeah. yeah this yeah, is well yeah, before right. Jim Steins. Yeah. yeah, Jim Steins was what eighty yeah. six. When did he start? Eighty seven was when he gave away the fifteen meter penalty yes. and that. Yeah. I don't know when he started. But anyway, it's pre-Jim Steins um, and pre-Sean White, who yeah. was the other yeah, Irish absolutely. Melbourne player at the time. So I've got a distinct memory of that. Like I can remember that sort of – because you remember back then 
it wasn't even that long ago actually this happened, but they didn't have the big circle. It was just the little mm. circle, and yeah. the ruckman came in off huge. Well, they bought they bought the uh, the big circle in because of all the posterior the, cruciate ligament yeah, injuries. Yeah, the PCL injuries, yeah. which was was it Adam Goods who. I think it may have been actually because he had a couple of yeah. instructions. Yeah. Um, and I get the safety aspects of it, but I'm not a player, so I don't care about that. <laughs> what I loved was, <laughs> was the, a bash and crash. Well, but it wasn't bash and crash. It was balletic. There was something mm. about the long run up, like the bounce. The leap. Yeah, and and coming in off the long. It was like watching a fast bowler or something yeah. like that come in. There was something extraordinary about that, and so I have that memory frozen in my mind of that it's first so funny trip. you say that because I've always described cricket for me anyway as just a waltz like this yeah. beautiful yeah. dance that kind of ebbs and flows so I've never heard footy described that way yeah I love that your brother is always seems to be the entry point into sport or yes. culture for you definitely yeah absolutely. for me the same so just you and your brother yes what was that like what was well it's a unique relationship because he's 10 years older than me but so my parents come to Australia from Egypt in the mid '60s. They actually meet here. They they weren't married in Egypt. They yeah. met here. They probably discovered there was another Egyptian and said, "Well, that's it. We got to get married or something." <laughs> I don't imagine in the '60s there were that many Egyptians running around. So anyway, so they met here and they have my brother, and then ten years later they have me. So what that means is um, I have a brother who is significantly older than me, and is the only figure in my family like the only older figure or mentor figure who's actually grown up here Mm. so my parents are my parents but I have a third parent who in some ways is on some things is more relevant because they have all the cultural touchstones that I that my parents didn't have because they didn't grow up here so he taught me footy Mm. and he taught me cricket and um, I was actually really good at footy and cricket when I was really little because he was constantly just bashing me up in the backyard. <laughs> so I was constantly competing against yeah. this guy who was 10 years older than yeah. me. And when right. I came to play at school or whatever, this was easy. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a lot easier. So was your brother the one that introduced you to Richmond then or where did the love, mad love, the, the nothing yeah. love of, of the Tigers <laughs> originate yeah. from? Well, um, I don't actually remember a day not being a Richmond supporter. So... However long I've been attached to Richmond is how long my memory is. I, like, I can't – there's not a moment I remember making a decision or anything like that. So it was your brother? It was Richmond? definitely my brother. Yeah. Okay. So my brother uh, – and apologies because I have told this story in public uh, before, but um, I'll try to give you an abridged version so as not to bore <laughs> What's his everybody. name, by the way? His name's Ahmed. Okay. So he, um, he was uh, – when he was a kid, he used to barrack for Peter McKenna. And um, <laughs> which is kind of, yeah, yeah. Okay. which now that I think about it, isn't that actually what a lot of people are doing now oh, with the yeah. NBA? Absolutely, they do it with soccer a lot. Like, I think um, a lot of people follow Dusty in the same way, yeah. Well, mm. th- that might be true with kids actually, mm. but then they tend to attach themselves to the team. Whereas my brother never barracked for Collingwood and was adamant about that. He did not, he did not barrack for Collingwood, he just barracked for Peter McKenna. Anyway, he was about five or six at the time. It was 1974, Richmond had just won back to back flags, and there was a girl in the street called Mandy who was a bit older than him who he quite fancied as a six-year-old and <laughs> so this. she was a huge Richmond fan and my brother uh, she had a conversation with him one day and it's like oh um, who do you barrack for and he said Peter McKenna and she said oh that means you barrack for Collingwood I said no I don't barrack for Collingwood I barrack for Peter McKenna he said no you can't do that and this is Mandy saying you can't do that so he's like well, oh, okay Mandy so, so who should I barrack <laughs> yeah. for and she's like well you should barrack for Richmond but the, she was in a very good position because not only did she have this six-year-old who was infatuated with her Richmond had just won back-to-back flags. So she could honestly say they're the best team, barrack for them. And so his fate was sealed. And then vicariously, my fate was sealed. So that's how that happened. So much like we have Mandy to thank for (laughs) (laughs) you joining the Tigers. Did I tell we found Mandy? No. We found her. What? Where? Okay. <laughs> Doing what? Well, I, I, um, I was really on... Really invested in I know, I know. I was on AFL 360 the day before the grand final, the night before the grand final. And oh. I told the Mandy story and they put the call out to find Mandy and we eventually found her. And so I interviewed her on the project oh, after awesome. we won the premiership. But now I've lost her again. I need to try to so find her. So Mandy, if you're listening. If she's listening. I, I should actually like have brunch with her or something. Yes. Yeah. Get her to a game. I spent all my life detesting that woman and then once we won the grand final i was like yeah, oh yeah. you're, you're great yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah yeah we've got her to thank <laughs> why couldn't you barrack for hawthorne or something it would have been different getting you into the yellow and black but then you came to an open training 
Yes. I believe, or Family Day, was it? No, it was a training session. Open training yeah. in 2001. Yes, on September 11, 2001. Mm. And so this is basically, tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah. You come to this open training with your sister-in-law and nephews. Yep. Uh, and Martin Flanagan is in the crowd. The great writer. Yeah. The great writer observing the crowd and decides to write a piece about, I guess, well, you, why don't you tell it? All right. So it was September 11, 2001. It was a stunning day, like one of those amazing September days. Richmond was training because we had Carlton in the semifinal that weekend. And the terrorist attack hadn't happened yet because it's September 11 in the morning in America that it happens. So it actually yes. happens really late at night. Mm. And I remember distinctly because I was watching Talking Footy when it happened. Uh, and my dad so rushed in. Were you? Yes. Yeah, I, right. I got a phone call from New York. Oh, there you go. Friend. Anyway, yes, you tell us. Yeah, right. So we, we've corroborated yes. that Talking Footy was on yes. the moment. And my dad rushed in and just said, the, these planes have hit the Twin Towers. And I immediately thought, well, that's bad flying. Like, I didn't realise what yeah. had happened. Eventually, we switched over and watched the news. And obviously, it became clear at that point. Sandra Sully, all that stuff. But I remember um, that day... Uh, it was all about the footy, right? So I was there, I think, had Leighton Hewitt just beaten Pete Sampras in the yeah. US Open? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all these associations. I know. Um, <laughs> and uh, after the training session, we went on the ground, had a kick, all that sort of stuff. And I just went home and thought nothing of it. Then the Twin Towers happens. Uh, then we go to the game. And Martin Flanagan writes this piece uh, on that Saturday in The Age that was all about, I think it was titled something like Letting the Games Go On in the Face of Adversity. And I think he was talking about how football has kind of always kept going in these moments, you know, through world wars or whatever it is. And it brings a sense of normalcy at times when actually that's relevant um, and useful. And so I was reading this and I just thought it was, I always loved Martin Flanagan's writing and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Uh, and then he gets to a paragraph where he describes us at that training session uh, Obviously, because of the September 11 thing, and my sister-in-law wears a hijab, so she's visibly Muslim. So he just he described us, and he said he, as he looked at us, he thought what, how great this game could be because we were just another Richmond family, mm. that sort of stuff, which obviously gathered a new potency after the events of that night. And I read it and sort of had to overcome the initial shock at reading about myself in the paper by accident, and then. Because uh, I'd always been such a fan of his and I was interested in newspapers and writing. Um, I was at uni at the time and I just emailed him out of the blue and I said, um, you don't know me, but you just wrote about me. <laughs> and um, I've always loved your stuff and um, I'm interested in writing. And if there's anything you've got to tell me of use, that would be great. And I don't know how long it was after, a week, a month, whatever, I got a phone call. Because I, I must have left my phone number. I got a phone call and it, <laughs> he said, it's Flanagan. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, away we were and we had a really good chat. And honestly, I think if it, I mean, you never know. Um, things might turn out the way they turn out anyway. Mm. But I feel like if it wasn't for that moment, I, I don't end up in doing media at all, really. Most of this is Flanagan's fault. That was a sliding door moment. Yeah, I think so. Mm. I mean, there are a couple, but that's probably the biggest. Mm. Yeah. I want to know, the thing that I really want to know, he described you as just another Richmond family. Yeah. Were you? Is that how you felt? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. I mean, we weren't a family in the sense that he obviously assumed my sister-in-law was my wife or something. But, yeah, all that mattered was that we were in a semi-final against Carlton and that we had to win that game mm. uh, and that we were at Punt Road and it was pretty exciting and we got to go out and kick the footy on Punt Road afterwards. That's that's all that mattered. And we were part of a community of people. You know what training sessions in finals mm. are like? And it's not grand final training because it's obviously um, semi-final week. But it doesn't matter. Yeah, you're definitely part of that community. Did it change? What, being another Richmond family? Yeah. Um, no. No, I don't think it did. Outside of footy, it did, definitely. Mm. Everything changed because... Mm. The problem used to be growing up, the problem used to be being non-white and then being a Muslim was a totally different thing all of a sudden. Mm. It, you, it was like you were suddenly part of a political party or something mm. and um, you were being politicised yeah. um, just in popular discourse. So that changed, everything changed there. But I think footy always remained a different 
sort of a place as a result of it. That's been my experience too. Yeah. Even going into the football, people would shake my hand and say, oh, welcome, and that felt really weird. Yeah. But then once I was in there and I had some team colours on me, yeah. it just felt like everything else went away. Yeah, what matters is what colours you're wearing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different kind of racism or tribalism, if you like. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's based on different sorts of colours. But it's the same. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. And cricket doesn't work that way, Mm. interestingly. I remember going along to a one-day final between Australia and Pakistan and Australia smashing Pakistan. And I was there supporting Australia. And at the innings break, uh, some Australian supporter came up and started, um, like, gloating and abusing me because Pakistan were getting smashed. And I was like... I'm on your I side. was confused <laughs> at first. I was like, I didn't understand what was going on. And then, of course, I understood relatively quickly. And you go, well, yeah. Um, so cr- cricket's interesting because it's probably the same group of people in the stadium. But the dynamics of the support is very different. Mm-hmm. Certainly then. I mean, that would have been, oh, 2000 and little more Pakistan out. Probably three, four, something like that. Mm. Um, and I remember Brett Lee tore through them. Mm. Yeah. Bringing in another sport, yes. another coach. I've heard you talk about a connection between Liverpool, Liverpool Football Club, and yeah. Richmond Football Club. Yeah. Now, I just need you to sit back and tell and me. Explain this. Theory. Okay, so uh, I, I should declare that I'm a huge Liverpool fan. Like, I'm obsessed. Uh, and I went, one of the, probably the second greatest day I've ever had was um, Liverpool winning the Champions League earlier this year. And I was in Madrid to see it. It was unbelievable. And I've been to Anfield once, and it's genuinely extraordinary and there are a lot of things that I think football fans in Australia would learn from the experience of seeing that football code in Europe and the way it works and fan culture especially is just mm. off the charts it's another thing entirely and we are nowhere near scary? it scary no oh well so I went to a, um, a Champions League game so I took my son on a trip because he's obsessed with um, with soccer um, as well as lots of other sports especially footy but um but he, I took him on a trip. We went to see Tottenham versus Chelsea at Wembley. Wow. Then we went to see Paris Saint-Germain, Liverpool in Paris in the Champions League. And then we went and saw Liverpool, Everton at Anfield. This was like, so it was great. Which shows that exactly. I know. Yeah, dad of the year. But you know what's great? He was totally irrelevant to proceedings. He was just yeah. the excuse that allowed me to go. But, um, <laughs> but it's the best week of his life. And he just constantly goes, I just want to go back and live that again. And it's like, oh, God. All right. How am <laughs> I, I going to make that happen? Yourself in the I know. But anyway, um, it was incredible. And each of those fixtures is very different. But the, um, the Paris Saint-Germain-Liverpool game, that was on an edge. There was something in the crowd that was on edge. And it starts from the very beginning. Like there are these barricades hundreds of metres from the stadium and you walk through and the security is huge and it takes forever to get through. Mm. And then they do shirt checks. So if you go through this gate, you have to be a PSG supporter. And if you're wearing a Liverpool shirt, that they will basically deny you entry. And my son decided he wanted to wear his Liverpool shirt. Oh. Just, oh, why are you doing that? But they didn't check him because he's a little kid, so it was all right. So little things like that. Um, and then I got in there, and the stadium holds, what, 40,000, something like that? Uh, but it felt it was always on the edge of feeling violent. But can I say this, and this is the most impolitic thing to say, it was awesome. And that's what made it awesome, that everything mattered in a way that it just doesn't otherwise. And I don't think it ever would have actually broken out into violence i suspect a lot of it is my sensitivity as an australian supporter who's just not used to seeing crowds behaving Mm. quite this way the other thing that soccer crowds have it is it's really primal the other thing is it's very male Mm. which i don't think we appreciate watching it on tv but it is very male and i think part of that is a lot of it's season ticket holders it's very hard to get season ticket uh season tickets to these games because they're sold out and they're Gender, intergenerational you know mm. a lot of them belong to people who've died because mm. they don't want to declare that they've died to the club and they want to pass it down in the family right so it's very hard to break in mm. to get tickets certainly for liverpool fans that's true um raises all sorts of issues about a generation of kids who can't get into the game all that sort of stuff but it is very male for um for better and for worse it's male and so that gives it a kind of aggression i think mm. that's unmitigated mm. but it's also what makes it, it's a unique and intoxicating atmosphere. It's genuinely, a fa- I, I was sitting amongst PSG supporters as they were going nuts and I loved every minute of it. There's something incredible about it. So then what about the connection between... Richmond and Liverpool? Yes. Okay, sorry, yes, I got sidetracked. So 
Uh, I'm a huge Liverpool supporter and I'm a huge Richmond supporter and it took me uh, a little while to figure out that they're the same thing. And the reason I love them both so much is probably for the same reasons. They are both enormous clubs with enormous supporter bases that are uniquely loud. Uh, and also, I would argue, very knowledgeable and invested in the game. Like, it's probably actually not true that Richmond has more supporters than other clubs if you do a survey. But what we do have is supporters who are much more invested. So I'll just pick a number. 80% of our support base is really invested, whereas 15% of another club's support base might be. That's why I think we look like we have so many more supporters. But we are hugely invested. We are clubs with enormous traditions. Liverpool have won 18 league titles until Manchester United emerged from nowhere and started winning all those titles. Mm. They were the most successful club in, in the history of English football. They won a trophy a couple of weeks ago, which means they now have the most trophies of any club in England, um, most major trophies. Mm. They are a behemoth. Richmond is a behemoth. And then it gets to 1980 in Richmond's case and 1990 in Liverpool's case, and they just become crap for decades. <laughs> it just falls off a cliff. But the supporter base remains there. And so it's, it's the same story. The only real difference in the story is that Liverpool's working class roots remain intact, whereas Richmond's working class roots don't really. Richmond's now a gentrified area mm. and the Richmond support base isn't necessarily any more working class than mm. probably Carlton's or something like that. Um, so that's probably the only big difference. But the mythology is all the same. The grandeur is the same. Um, and, and Richmond definitely isn't Manchester United. Mm. Like, they're, they're, not, they're not the same thing. Manchester United is this, I don't know, it's a corporate behemoth. There's something about modern glory, um, there's no, there's not suffering what is in the, the same way. United in the I was AFL. Just well, I'm in footballing terms, it's Hawthorne, mm. but Hawthorne's probably not quite big enough. So if Collingwood was Hawthorne, that would be Manchester United. Yeah, but I think. Yeah, Colling, Collingwood. Yes, mm. but Collingwood's I mean? so far, far from being there. The yeah, Manchester they're not. But if, but if Collingwood had won all the flags Hawthorne have won recently then you would have Manchester United. Mm. And then imagine the Richmond-Collingwood rivalry. If it was <laughs> like that, that's what the Liverpool-Manchester yeah, United rivalry from is. the roots of where it started. Yeah. Mm. But so I've always, I think I just had this natural affinity for Liverpool which are, without really understanding why. Mm. And then it dawned on me that it's, it's the same experience. It triggers the same. Every now and again, I'll meet a Liverpool supporter who barracks for like North Melbourne. And I, I was like, I don't get it. <laughs> it's like they, they've got to go together. Yeah, right. How, you can't barrack for Liverpool and then barrack, you've got to barrack for Richmond. That's, that's the way it works. They're connected. When's the book coming out on this? <laughs> yeah. Well, it'll begin as a paper. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, I don't know. I should write something like I that. I think you though. should. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'd love to do it. Especially in the lead up to the finals. Yeah, that would be, I'll get it out now. Yeah. All right, we've got to buy. So that's long enough yeah. to get a book out. Hey, you can right. write a speech in five minutes. Excellent. You'll be fine. Yeah, that'll be great. There's more Richmond mm. questions that come in, but I want to throw this one to you. Yeah. So your wonderful wife, Susan, yeah. I believe having done the research and I've yeah. spoken about, you first met her as a teenager. You're both yeah, teenagers yeah, yeah. when she actually came to your house. To, she was doing some research on the, yeah. uh, on the Islam uh, faith yeah. and she, wasn't, she hadn't yet converted. No. So at that point in time, did you see this? Were you infatuated with her? Did you see this sort of woman and think, or this this young girl and think um, she's going to be the, my future queen? Uh, I always thought she was pretty great. I don't know that that was reciprocated. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, not really, I believe. No, well, later on, actually, she made it abundantly clear that it wasn't. But it's interesting because she, yeah, it was like, so we, like, we knew each other, but then we, there were, God, probably a few years where we didn't really have much to do with each other at all. Um, we're at different universities and yeah. all that sort of stuff. So what you're referring to is probably about, I would have been year 11 maybe. I think you were 16 or there. Yeah, ish. something like that. So it would be about year 11, um, maybe end of year 10, which was 1995, which was a great year for Richmond. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. Um, it was. I was physio here. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> there yes, you go. It was a great yeah. year. Oh, what a day. That day against Essendon <laughs> at the MCG was one of the great the draw? days. The draw? No. And I know when we won the, went, the yes. semifinal and Knights kicked three and Scotty Turner went forward yes, and yes. anyway, all that. It's not like I, as soon as I saw her, I said, that's it. This is my future is here. Um, apart from anything else, that wasn't my decision to make. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it's fair to say that I, I fancied her from the beginning. It's yeah. funny because. 
when you did win the gold logie, yeah. you gave a beautiful speech and mentioned your wife. And, you know, I, I've met your wife and I, I'm pretty in love with her too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Stood her up recently. <laughs> 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 it's a great excuse though. <laughs> um, so I don't blame you for kind of thinking she's pretty amazing. Mm. But what was really strange was you talk about her and people are surprised that you're so enamoured with your own wife. What do you, <laughs> that is what you, you copped stuff after that speech, didn't you? Oh, did I? About that, I didn't. I mean, <laughs> you, know, you always cop stuff if you work in TV. But yeah. um, I didn't know I cop stuff about that. Well, if that's the case, then um, that's not good, is it? Just that people were like, wow, what a guy. Oh, that's he what thinks I mean. his wife is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I think in a moment like that, you just talk. Uh, and move on. Like, I, I don't think you're not dwelling on things that everybody else seems to be dwelling on. So I didn't see that as especially remarkable. But she was like, well, I've said that in the past. Then. She is an enormous part of not just my life, but everything that I do mm. with my life um, in all kinds of ways, like in the sort of cliched ways of support and all that sort of stuff, but also um, in via counsel, like... Mm. She's the best advisor that I have. Mm. Um, and there are many times where the only advice I want to hear is hers. Um, and I might seek other people's advice, but um, I know that she will actually understand the issue, whatever it is, um, better than anybody else. So an example of that um, was recently after the Christchurch um, attacks. And I did this piece to camera on the show that night. And... Um, that was all written in a rush because there was no time, but I'd spent probably an hour, two hours before that just on the phone intermittently with Susan trying to figure out if this was something I should do. Mm. Um, we discussed it at length and there was really nobody else in the world who I could have asked for advice that would have been meaningful. And she actually advised you in the end, I believe, to not go ahead and do it. Yeah. Well, she, we, yes. We, we had a long conversation at the end of it. It wasn't a firm conclusion, yep. but she just sort of was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think you should. Um, and part of it was around what exactly do you say? Mm. Um, and there are all sorts of other calculations, like um, do you want to put yourself in the centre of this? Is this something you're really prepared to go through? Mm. Because it, uh, I think people watching from a distance think that these things are actually moments of triumph and they're not. They're, they're positively awful experiences mm. a lot of the time and that was. So, um, we, you know, we had a lot of those sorts of conversations and she was, yeah, I think her, um, to put it in um, to cricketing terms, her soft signal was <laughs> that it's um, probably not something that I should do. And so what I did was I ended up going to the producers and saying, look, if you want me to do this, you have to leave me alone for an hour I'm going to go into a room, I'm going to see what I come up with, and you have to proceed on the basis that it won't happen. But give me the chance to see whether it will happen. Mm. Um, And that was probably me enacting her advice in a way. And in the end, I came up with some words and I thought, well, yeah, I think I can go with that. Uh, And unfortunately, by the time I figured that out, it was two minutes to (laughs) airtime. Okay. It was pretty brutal, yeah. I I saw you after, soon after that moment in time, the, your piece to camera, but then also interviewing the Prime Minister. Mm. And it was a really tough time for a lot of people, yeah, yeah. but in particular you. Where are you at now, looking back on that? Uh, I tend not to look back at it, actually. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, I sort of look back at it when it, get, when it comes up. I think it's best not to, in mm. a way. To put that in context, though, I'm terrible at looking back at things I've done anyway. Mm-hmm. So if you ask me what was on the show last night, I can't tell you. I just don't remember. And I, and part of that's because you do it every day. It's a bit like when I ask mm. you what you had for dinner last mm. night and you just can't remember. You know, it's that kind of thing. But um, I had a great dinner. Was, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, but only because it was that good. We probably had a great show, yeah. but who knows. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I tend to move on very quickly in that way and not really reflect until I'm forced to. But especially that kind of thing, it was it was actually in its way quite traumatic. So I don't enjoy thinking about it. Um, and so I, I kind of, um, it, it's only when I look back and then I have to try to assess whether or not, like if I'm asked to, mm. to assess whether or not I'm happy with what I did and so on. And in the end, uh, I, I suppose I haven't really reached a conclusion about whether or not I would do it again because 
uh, I don't have that choice anyway. Mm. But I think the answer is probably yes. Um, but I think that's because I was satisfied with the way in which I made those decisions at the time. Mm. I felt like, I'd, yeah. to use a cliche, I'd gone through the process. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd asked the right questions of the right people. I'd got the right advice. And what happened was the natural outcome of that. Yeah. Uh, understanding that it's not an enjoyable experience and not <laughs> trying to string it along. When you did speak, you, you said that you were gutted, you were scared among mm. many other things, but, in, but you said you weren't surprised. Yeah. Can you expand on that to, um, to, for our listeners? Yeah, I think what I was saying is that um, an event like that, so there we're really talking about a massacre of, uh, I think in the end it was 51 people. I think it got updated later because yep. someone died uh, a few days after. But, um, yeah, you're talking about a massacre of that many people in a mosque. I, I was really just saying I'd seen that coming. Not that I woke up that morning mm. think it's, thinking that it's going to happen. But when I heard that news, I, I'm thinking, well, yeah, that's, that's what happens now. There had been precedents for it. There had been massacres in churches um, and in synagogues. Um, you'd started to see the emergence of this kind of far-right violence, which we're now talking about a bit more, but at the time no one was really paying any attention to, but it actually been there quite a lot for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my academic area is in studying mm-hmm. terrorism, so I probably pay attention to those things more than an, the average person might. So I was kind of aware of it. And then just the way that political culture had been moving, just all those things added up to me to saying that... Um, that this was on the cards, basically. And eventually those cards got played, uh, and that's what we ended up seeing. Are we moving in the right direction uh, on mm. the back of that? Are we, uh, and, and in, mm. in, in your field of work, uh, yeah, uh, where are we? I think the problem is, the problem with asking a question like that in today's world is that the answer is always contradictory. Mm. So actually what's happening is we are moving in opposite directions simultaneously all the time Mm. so just as so to put i'm trying to avoid academic language here but uh, to some extent i can't as society becomes more cosmopolitan and more comfortable with dealing with diversity Mm. and those sorts of things it also becomes less capable those two things happen at once Mm. Uh, and so What we generally get is we start maybe at point A and everywhere we move is a mess. Um, And there are good aspects of that mess and there are bad aspects of that mess. And so I think what's happening actually is that politics, and by politics I don't mean party politics, I mean just um, people's own Mm -hmm. politics, is tending towards the extremes more and more. And that's a cycle. So we observe the other extreme and then we we take an opposite extreme and mm. then that feeds mm. at the opposite extreme. And so there's kind of that dance. It's a waltz, if you like, a, um, just no, not as not much fun as cricket. Switching a little bit more back to footy, but in a similar kind of context, I want to ask you about Basha. Yep. I know for me, when he came on the scene, it was a really big deal. Yeah. And I felt like an immediate kind of, I want to follow this guy, barracked for Basha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I wasn't an Essendon supporter. Yeah. Um, how did you feel when he came on the scene? I was very excited, but I, I, it's a slightly different situation for me because I'd met him before he was drafted. Right. Um, because we were, um, I, uh, me and a few friends, including Susan actually, did a show on community TV mm-hmm. called Salam Cafe which ended up on SBS eventually. Great show. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. No God Logies for it. But we did win an antenna (laughs) award, so there you go. Uh, We did an episode with him. So I went out to his house and he was wearing, I think, his Western Jets stuff. And, yeah, I played kick to kick. So super young. Yeah, yeah. Kick to kick, what was I like? So funny. So it was amazing because for entertainment purposes, the idea was he would destroy me, right? So we did kick to kick and I kind of just let him destroy me. And then I thought, all right, we've got what we need now. Let him destroy you. AFL footy legends. No, no, this is, let me, let, yeah, it is. Yeah. Let me get to the end of the story. Okay. So I, I just thought, okay, now we've got what we need. I'll actually, let's see what happens. And it made no difference whatsoever. 
If I was going at 100 or I was going at zero, the result was exactly the same. And this is a guy who's like five. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. How is he doing this? I was, it just, it's, you know, you get those moments where you realise just how big the gap is mm. between sort of normal and people. You've got and you've none at least. Yeah, no, none. <laughs> I was completely irrelevant to proceedings. Yeah. You know? And I remember, also remember him kicking the ball to me and it hit my hands before I'd really registered the ball was coming. It just sort of went bang and there it was. And I've heard people um, say similar things about facing, like, you know, good cricketers. Mm who would, like Merv Hughes would come down and play a game for Footscray. Uh, and this is a specific example, actually. And there was a guy who I, at the club I played was a legend and he was facing him. And he said, the ball hit my helmet and went out to cover before I saw <laughs> it. <laughs> he knew what was going on. Yeah. And that's Merv Hughes. who's yep. not even yeah. that quick in the context of yeah. test cricket, <laughs> I right? I have a funny Merv Hughes story. Just quickly, I played a charity game many, many years ago and um, Port Ferry. And anyway, I'm out, I'm, I'm you know, in the outer and yeah. out on the boundary and the ball's coming to me. And I'm like, oh, this is coming at me. And all I could hear was Merv Hughes say, get out of the way. And I'm like, <laughs> what? And then he's like, Tiff. Could then he said my name, get out of the way. And so... So I ducked and I was like, oh, my God. And he said, that was coming straight for your face. And I said, but no. And he said, look at the gap in your hand. <laughs> I was thinking football, right? And I had this massive gap. The ball would have... Anyway, Aww. so thanks, Merv Hughes. You yeah. actually you no saved me. No one teach you how... The, you <laughs> no, you. I was just thinking football. Yeah, it's not like taking a mark. It's <laughs> no, a very no. different thing. Yes. But anyway, yeah, so I knew Bash from back then. That's when we first met and I interviewed him and um, stuff like that. It was really good fun. Uh, and so I followed him. And then when he got drafted, we obviously wrapped. We went along to his first game. I remember Nazim Hussain, who was part of that, and he's obviously gone on to have a great career in comedy. He went along to the press conference after the game. Kevin Sheedy was the coach. He asked him this question, which we'd been talking about a lot, but he actually had the balls to ask it. He said, what do you think of the fact that the first practicing Muslim in the AFL has been drafted to play for the Bombers? <laughs> That was the running gag, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Every Muslim had clocked that, right? But it was (laughs) What was Sheed's response? I think it took him – this is all from memory, so I haven't watched it back. But I think it took him about five seconds to realise that the question was a joke. Yeah. And so I think he sort of – he went to start and then it's like, what just – sorry, what? Why am I being – who's – and then, ah – and then he just kind of laughed and he went, oh, bomber hooli, hey, and then moved on. But there was, it was a weird thing because you know what those press conferences yeah. like can be like? Yeah. Mm. They're very serious yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a bunch of people asking. Like I find them actually, as someone who does a lot of interviewing, I find those press conferences almost amusing because the questions are always really apologetic. Yes. And then the coaches yes. get really angry yes. anyway. Yeah, and then they'll throw it back at you. And yeah. And I once had a conversation with Mick Malthouse about this. He loved throwing questions back. Yeah. He loved it. And he also loved being offended by questions, yes. right? And I, I said to him, uh, i got to be honest, um, I don't understand why football coaches get upset because I find all the questions utterly deferential <laughs> oh, yeah. and in no way are they accountability questions. Like, And then you get really, really upset about them. If I compare them to the questions that I asked the Prime Minister, like, they're worlds apart. Yeah, yeah. Like, you don't get asked tough questions at all. Right? And what did you say? And he, it was like that was the first time he'd thought of that. It was really interesting. Mm. And, and by the end of the conversation... We ended up, I think, at a place where now I might be conflating multiple conversations that went beyond just Mick. So, sorry, take this with a grain of salt. But where I ended up by exploring this was that the problem usually isn't that they get asked questions they don't like. It's that in the footy world, what happens is nobody asks tough questions, really. And then they write things in. So the analysis hurts them, but they have no right of reply. Mm to those sort of things. so they And they've just lost the game or whatever. And so they're, con- they're just on edge. And yep. so anything that happens that demonstrates that you don't know something about the game that I know, I'm just going to let you have it. I think that's a perfect answer. And that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas actually, if they were genuinely asked yeah. tough questions... Most of them wouldn't be able to answer them. Well, but I wonder if they would. And I wonder if they would, pr- they, they would become less defensive because they have a chance to address... And more experience at Some of those so. things. Mm. I, don't, I don't know. I mean, to be fair, they're football coaches, not politicians. And, you know, I, I spoke to um, Jared Waitley about this because I was intrigued by it just journalistically. Mm. Why are football interviews always so polite, mm. even though coaches don't see them that way? And he said, well, I guess because what's the public interest in them not being mm. like that? I mean, with the prime minister or a politician or whatever, 
there's an accountability yes. dimension. That's the public interest. What's the public interest here? But if you have a situation where it's something really serious, for example, like the interview that Jared and um, Robbo did with James Hurd mm-hmm. about the Asada stuff, then it did become yeah. more accountability because yeah, that's not about, mm. you know, kicks Mark's handballs and who's tagging whom. And that's about something that's actually a, a, a public interest issue. And so I thought that was probably the best yeah. explanation mm. or distillation of it. That said, I'd love to see political interviewing move <laughs> into sport. Just, I think we, maybe we should just put you in. Yeah, right. I don't yeah, think that would go well season. in the context. But you can imagine what it was like <laughs> seeing like Nazim turn up and ask oh. a question like that. This made no sense to anyone. But, yeah, it was good fun. So we've got a couple of questions, but on that note then, what has been your favourite moment in uh, in football? Uh, as a sporter. Um, and I, th- I could guess it, but... It may not no. be. No, what is your guess? Well, the, the easy guess would be yeah. 2017 Grand Final. Yeah, do you know it's not? Yeah. It's I'm, actually the week before. Oh, the preliminary yeah. against GWS. And I think it's because Grand Final Day could happen again. Like, it's possible that that happens again. Yeah. It is impossible yeah. that that prelim final happens again. Mm. It's it still just gives goosebumps. impossible. Our producer, Ian's just nodding his head. Yeah, like it's for anyone who wasn't Mm. there that day, there is no way to convey it. There's something about, it was a full MCG. Mm. And you know how in games generally, but especially in finals, you can see the blocks of supporters, like the colours change, right? It was just yellow and black all the way around Bar a tiny little spot. Who was sitting right next to me. (laughs) Because I was in the Ponsford stand. And so they were, um, I was right next to the cheer squad. So I was one of the few people who actually heard them cheer. Were you offering them tissues? (laughs) Not at half time. Dangerous at half time. You will never see, like the only thing that comes close to it, to the MCG being like that, was uh, one of my great MCG moments was when uh, Mitchell Stark bowled Brendan McCullum in his first Mm -hmm. over of the... 2015 World Cup final. That was an unbelievable moment. There was a moment in the Commonwealth Games. Kerry McCann. That's what. Well, actually, I wasn't there for that, but I imagine that would have been. The roar you could hear down Swan Street. Yeah, yeah. So if I was there for that, I would probably say that. The one I was there for was Craig Mottram running the 1500 and he lost, Mm -hmm. but there was a moment where I think he took the lead. And that was a roar at the MCG Mm -hmm. that has a particular quality. But none of that was anything like. As visceral as mm. what happened yeah. at the MCG that day against GWS, to have the whole stadium to ourselves—that's it. To have a 35-year drought, that's grand final drought, yeah. not premiership drought. Yeah. So we're playing to get into a grand final. It was, it was full of what was it, 94,000 people, all of whom were witnessing something that they probably resigned themselves never to witnessing mm. in their lives, mm. with a desperation that will never occur again. Mm. Um, and completely unmediated by the presence of any opposition supporters. <laughs> it was utterly joy. remarkable. Like there was, it felt like just sheer joy yeah. for everybody. What do you like as a supporter on game day? I want to know rituals, superstitions. What, uh, what do you think I'm like? I think yeah. that you go very internal and just kind of yeah. poker face. Poker face. Am I right? I wouldn't say I'm poker face. Okay. I'm, I'm internal. Like you're the, not do you screaming yell out? at the... You don't no. Every now and again, something will come out and that's almost involuntary. Like, come on. Yeah, or what's that? What's that? <laughs> that's usually directed <laughs> the at... The polite a, way of, like, of yell, yelling at Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's usually directed at an umpiring decision. And that's the <laughs> lawyer in me being upset. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, what do you call that? What, like... Objection, you're on. Yes, that. that's exactly what that yeah. is. Can you hold conversation during a game? I or can. Are you focused? I, I can. I've had actually some very deep conversations right. uh, during games that have nothing to do with football. I remember sitting there talking to a friend of mine who uh, is, I love this guy, but unfortunately he lives overseas now. Um, and he's a, um, he has a PhD in philosophy from Oxford and he was working at Monash at the time and he's a Melbourne supporter. We went to a Melbourne Richmond game and we ended up discussing at length um, the question of whether or not it is ultimately justifiable to care about this game. Wow. That is in front of us. <laughs> So did anyone around you hear the conversation? <laughs> they might have. Or they'd blocked you off. I don't know, actually. <laughs> I'm not really out. sure. He's such a Walid Ali thing to say. <laughs> yeah. But can I be clear? That's not what happens most weeks. Yeah, right. that, it's a combination of who you're with and yeah. all that sort of stuff. So, But I tend to watch the game very uh, analytically. So I'm obviously interested in why, like, if, sorry, whether we're winning or losing. Mm. But that's not enough. 
I need to know why it's happening. Mm. Um, so I'm, you know, there are people who the ultimate place for them to sit is in the cheer squad. Mm. The ultimate place for me to sit would be in the coach's box. And, and I don't want to say anything. I don't want to get in the way. I just want to hear what they think is happening. Because I might have an idea of what I think is happening. But I'd love to know what's Tell really happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the voice you have the privilege of sitting in a um, team meeting. I did. Last year, was uh, last An opposition analysis yeah. meeting. And that was one of the best things I've ever done. I was just going to say, that would have been... I loved it. Did you throw anything in? No, I didn't do <laughs> you that. You wanted to? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't Any see... observation? Actually, no. I'm I, I just receceptive in that. Like, I just want to learn about the way they see the game. Yeah. And, and did you walk away with... Totally. And it changed the way I watched the game. Yeah. I should I should try to get into another one because mm. that's obviously outdated now. I'd, lo- I'd Yeah, like, I think that's what it is for me is I see each game as a as a puzzle and I'm trying mm. to figure out what exactly mm. is going right, what's going wrong and what you could do about it. And my brother I think is fairly similar. So I'm, I don't I go to the footy with him every week but I do go quite a lot with him mm. and so there's a lot of that sort of conversation. And then he's always more upset at the umpires than I am because um, he's, a, he's a doctor and I'm a lawyer and he hates lawyers because he's a doctor. <laughs> and um, <laughs> but but because I'm a lawyer, I think I have this instinctive need to defend the the umpires, the administers of the law. <laughs> so something will happen, and he'll be really he'll be really upset about some free kick. And I was going, yeah, but I think he's concluded. <laughs> that's just the role of a little brother. <laughs> that, to be yeah, that is definitely part <laughs> of it. I've the seen your brother's surgical headwear. <laughs> oh, right. He's got Richmond. Your kid. What is it that surgeons wear? I don't even know what it's called. The cap. Yeah, yeah I know what you're I talking guess. about. Yeah, the he's gown got a, and the, it's part of their scrubs. Yeah. 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 He wears a Richmond, or well, he's got a Richmond surgical cap. Yeah. That so, doesn't surprise me at all, actually. <laughs> I yeah. feel like he's a bit more of a maverick. <laughs> May, uh, yeah, but I do work in a stupid industry. Yeah. You know what I mean? UN. So, like, he's yeah. the sensible one. Like, yeah. in the family, he's the one that the parents are proud of. He went and got a real job. Whereas yeah, I'm the failure who got this pretend job. Like, that's what <laughs> that's me. Well, there's so many strings to your, bo- to your bow. I mean, well, you could have been potentially. You Maybe now it's, you know, training to be a coach of an AFL <laughs> uh, philosopher. But you were first growing up, you were fascinated by journalism and then you chose to study law. Yeah. Why is that? Well, I was fascinated by media, I think, when I was a little kid. So when I was in grade six, for example, I did a, uh, a radio station at school, came up with this What was it, idea. something, 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 FM? Yeah, VPS FM, because it was a Vermont <laughs> primary school. Yeah. And uh, there were four of us, so I got three mates together who I was hanging out with, and we ran this thing, and we had a great time. Um, we did it, and so I was interested in broadcasting that way, but my first love was always print, and especially the age. So I grew up in a house where, like, the age was always there, and it was a broadsheet, and it was bigger mm-hmm. than me, and I used to sit on it, mm-hmm. um, literally sit on the paper and read or look at it. Even if I couldn't understand it, I was just fascinated with it and I'd just look at it. And I remember when I first got published in The Age, it was just an out-of-body experience. So I think uh, I'd had that fascination, but actually by the time I got into high school, that waned and law became my real interest, I think. And, and so why? partly I think it was that people kept telling me that it was. <laughs> so I, I, would, I loved debate. And so people would do that thing, which is probably quite lazy, but in the end, accurate, where they just say, you should be a lawyer. (laughs) And so I kind of ended up doing that. And I think I was fascinated with, and I still am, the idea of taking a topic and whatever argument is put before you, figuring out what the counter argument to that would be. Mm. Because I think that that's actually... That's actually a better way of understanding issues, I think. I think part of the problem we have as a society at the moment in the way that we talk is we speak before we understand the opposing argument, really. And so we never end up understanding it Mm. and we never really bother. And so we end up in tribes where all we really understand is our own position, right? And it's interesting because um, that is, in my view, there's there's a cliche about it. There's a saying that, um, that... the one who understands only their side of the argument understands little of that, right? Mm. But really you only Mm. understand your own Mm. argument once you understand the counter. So I think I've always had, I had that instinct and that's very much a legal thing. So one of the things I love about the law is um, that task of, okay, um, can, can we find an argument that says this? And that's actually, it's got to be rigorous. It's got to be a good argument. It can't just be, 
you know, can you assert this? It's got to be, can you genuinely find a way that reaches that point? And if you can't, then that's fine. You have to advise your client accordingly. But um, given that, being given that task, I think, is, is really interesting. And that had always attracted me. So what I find is that, and this is partly what plays out with my brother, I reckon, at the footy, is that if I'm in a room where everybody agrees on something, I instinctively find myself not necessarily disagreeing, but raising objections or raising so you'd become a, you'd be a good board member. Maybe, maybe. Well, there you go. There's a, that's the easy one. You'd be, you should become a journalist. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> that's yeah, your yeah, next. Yeah, yeah. Actually, well, one thing we were discussing, and and uh, and I uh, asked Rana for reference on it, but uh, my research. Yeah. So you were a member of a, of a band, Robot. Yeah, Robot Child. Like, yeah, child. yeah, yeah. And you're, still and you're I'm an, still in it. Yeah. And you're, yeah, you are a member. Yeah, yeah. And uh, guitarist. Yeah, yeah. So where did all, where did that? Come so from? that's been ever since I was a kid. Um, I think I first picked up a guitar in the summer vacation between grade three and grade four. And inspired by? Um, my brother, I think, had just started <laughs> learning it and I was hugely into guitar music. So, I, like, I grew up a lo- I grew up loving Queen. Yeah. Um, there was, that was the era where Dire Straits were quite big and so, Mark and Mark Knopfler's probably yeah. the best, like, mm. uh, we can have a long conversation about the best guitarist, but <laughs> he's the most inimitable mm. guitarist. There's no one who can play like him, mm. whether you think he's the best or not separate, but I was constantly surrounded by really great guitar music. I remember having the first album that I can visually remember, like record, mm in my house was Back in Black oh, by wow. ACDC. Yeah. So like I was always around that stuff. And later on I picked up saxophone, but guitar was the thing. And so, and I remember when I was in a music class in grade one, there was like a, um, a like a paper cut out tree on the, um, on I the door. Yeah, yeah, I've probably told awesome. the story, sorry. No, um, this is great. But anyway, so there was like branches on the door and we were all given a leaf and we had to write our favorite song. And everyone was writing songs from like the Sing It book. Do you remember the Sing It book? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So What's the Sing It book? So it was like Sing Along. So you'd go, right. it was at school. Yeah, yeah. At school you'd get one at the start of every year and every year there'd be a new edition yeah. and basically. And it'd just be like, there'd be sheet music in it, okay. but lyrics and stuff. And at music you would often go along and sing these songs. And so it was like Home Among the Gum Trees was the kind of, that's the song that always sticks in my mind about it because that's the kind of song. Yeah. So everyone was writing these songs from the Sing It book. And I remember I, just, I was confused. So I, I just got... The, my leaf, and I walked up to the teacher, and I just said, um, "How do you spell Bohemian Rhapsody?" <laughs> and they just looked at me like, "What?" Anyway, so she told me how to spell it. And we did it, and went up there. So, I, like that was very much. I was always like marinating in that. I think. Mm. And then uh, by the time it got to a point where I might actually get to learn how to play guitar, I was all over it. And I remember that summer, just every morning, and I'd get told off for getting up too early. <laughs> and making too much noise before everyone was awake. Like, I was really, really uh, excited about it. You put the doona over you or a blanket. And <laughs> oh, no, I didn't bother that. I was just, <laughs> and also, I couldn't play. So <laughs> it was just oh. it was just annoying noise, really. Yeah. I want to know, because you played sport, music was big. How much of getting involved in those hobbies was you wanting some kind of social capital? <laughs> I mean, probably wasn't as conscious as that at yeah, that age. But it definitely wasn't that conscious. Yeah. yeah. But, it, but it certainly happened. Yeah. Um, and I had the, well, you could see it as fortunate or misfortune, or misfortune, but I was really, really good, really young. And then I, and everyone catches up. Mm. But that's, so that's unfortunate in the sense that um, it means I was never going to be like a professional sports person. But it was fortunate in that the time where I was genuinely like better than my friends was at that crucial stage of childhood where you are making those initial connections and whatever. So Mm. like being the guy who everyone wanted to have on their cricket team at lunchtime or whatever was really useful. Mm. Um, And that that became actually quite powerful. It meant that I could kind of leapfrog a whole lot of stuff. And growing up in the eastern suburbs, um, being at primary school in the sort of the late 80s, um, you know, it, it was it was fairly white area. There were, you know, a couple of Asians, so some Vietnamese um, people, whatever, would occasionally turn up, but it was pretty, mm. pretty white. So in that context, you're already marked out, you know. Um, and so to have something where it's like I have something that you want whatever that is is useful and in my case that happened to be sport so footy and cricket and then after that basketball so when I was in primary school I was in I was playing rep basketball and stuff like that basketball was an interesting case because that's the one sport where being white's like a 
lower status thing. Yes, yes. Very much. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was interesting. So I remember we'd be doing layups at the start of the game and you could tell people looking over going, well, he must be good because he's not white. What was the movie? White man can't jump. White man can jump. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So whereas with footy, it wasn't really like, I mean, there was Morris Rioli and that was kind of, Mm. you know, the Cracker Brothers and that was about it. Mm. So, yeah, but definitely the social capital side of it was was really, really big, Mm. I think. Um, But it's definitely not why I did it. Yeah. I did it basically because I was copying my brother and because that's what you did. Mm. Like, that's well, social capital with him. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. Well, so that's actually that's a good observation, mm. whether you meant it to be or not. It is. I instinctively reject, yeah. but yeah, I also good. think there's this Cause he evidence of it. Now. had been through that process. This notion that you know, and he was, in he was a linear way. That, you know, um, and I don't have a memory of it. Begin at point A and we get to point B and point B is better or worse. Than um, and he certainly know, he knew a lot about um, and particularly like in our world where everything happens so fast. He's very good to so globalised and all that sort of stuff. Because he, like, he gets basic principles of it that when he states them sound obvious, but which I haven't heard mm. very often. Like that kind of thing. He obviously was a sponge and he's, like, he's very bright. So he picked a lot of that stuff up and then passed that on to me, which is probably why I had such a head start when I was really little. Because I was kind of, it's a bit like, who did I hear talking about this? And I'm not in any way comparing myself to him. But I heard... Um, Footnote. Yeah, yeah. And I need to make that abundantly clear. <laughs> I heard um, Cameron Smith talk about this recently. Yeah, Because right. he said one of the reasons he, for those who don't follow rugby league, he's not just the greatest player of all time, but he's a genius. Like he just sees the game mm, yeah. better than anybody else. Um, and he attributes that to the fact that he used to spend every day hanging out with his dad who was coaching a local team mm. and just watching as he delivered these mm. messages. to the, So he was like a six-year-old listening in on adult conversations mm. about it. Um, and so uh, it's a very different thing with my brother being 10 years older than me and whatever, but it was a similar sort of thing. Mm. I was kind of fast-tracked. And then eventually the fact that I'm just ultimately no good caught up with me. <laughs> but by that stage, the social... Capital had been built, I think. I feel like that. I have older, quite older siblings as well. And but for me, it was like Rambo and Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> like I could give you a really great analysis. Yeah, I, yeah, had, yeah. I had the older brother who <laughs> used masculinity. Who used to uh, wrestle me or try to, and then yeah. you know I played cricket and football and and all that kind of stuff. So did that make you Absolutely. really good at that stuff? Well, no, I wouldn't say really good, but I certainly, I certainly understood it and was able to talk it and and yeah. and play it to a degree yeah. because um, I was forced to. Like, I had no choice. Yeah. But I loved it, though. It was, Are you a good wrestler? Uh, you know, I'd like to say that it's I amazing. could. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm terrible. <laughs> um, I want to turn it back on to you, ask yeah. you a question that we ask all of our guests. And sure. uh, it's, a, it's about describing a picture, a photograph. It, it may be your favourite, it may not be, <laughs> but it may, it's just something that, that you can uh, describe to our listeners at that you love uh, and and that really reflects something you know that's really important in your life. Oh yeah, it's a very hard question. Unfortunately, the best image in my mind is the one I already described of the ruckman at that in that Melbourne yeah. Richmond game. So I can't use that anymore, can I? Because I've already uh, well, you can. I've already you can just say it's that. Oh, okay, see there. No, that's easy. Um, yeah, there we go. <laughs> is there another? Yeah. I th- so I'm going to use one I only just saw. Actually. I might even have it on me, so I'll try to find it on my phone while you. Um, well, if we can then share it, we'll share it on our um, on the website. Well, yeah, I've got to see if I can find it. But it's a photo. It's a really old photo of my mum and her sister. I assume in Egypt, mm-hmm. when my mum must have been in her twenties, and it just um, it just blew me away. And he's sorry. Um, my mum's sister is holding a little kid who is my cousin who I've never met because he doesn't live in Egypt anymore. He lives, I think, in Dubai. Um, so have, anyway, have a look at it. We're having a look at this, but talk to it, us, yeah. talk us through it. And so it. I don't know how to describe this, but you know when you get jolted from uh, a reality you think you know to a reality that's just as real but seems unreal mm. to mm. you? Mm. That's what that is. I've never really seen my mum like that. And her sister, who I know quite well, um, she's a glorious person, just unbelievably feisty and funny. And um, she was standing in front of tanks in Tahrir Square and, like, you know, as an 80-year-old, like, she's, yeah, she's an um, incredible person. I've never seen her like that. 
And there was something about being able to, that's mum, not even as my contemporary, but that's mum as my junior mm-hmm. now. Um, and they're sitting like, on, it looks like on a boardwalk, there's a beach nearby, um, maybe they're in Alexandria or something. I haven't been able to figure all this out. And I haven't spoken to mum because she's currently visiting her sister. Mm. So I haven't had a chance to talk to her about it. But there's something that that expresses to me about continuity, mm. but also about the similarities between generations that we completely overlook. Yeah, this idea that is utterly obvious that um, everyone who's older than us was once us. I th- I just mm. find completely mind-bending. And when it is somebody who belongs in a particular role, and that role probably didn't exist mm. then, actually. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things where you have a head explosion, mm. I think. Yeah, So that's the one I've got now. Hey, we can talk about Ruckman, though, if you'd beautiful rather. Beautiful insight. Beautiful. Into, yeah, <laughs> it is. And, and that's what... Old photos, especially, yeah, tend there's to something do. about old photos. I found an old one of my dad in it's probably six or seven, so yeah, in, yeah. in a similar scenario. I was and just thinking just... about I was about to get one. I've got, I know exactly what you're talking about a photo mm. of my mother when she was a child, mm. and it's just what it does to you. You yeah. can know it intellectually. And they're so vulnerable, too. Yes. Yes. But you also know how it turns out, which is the yes. other weird thing mm. about looking at old photos. There's a fantastic... Now mm. I'm going to give you lots of photos. There's a photo. <laughs> there's an amazing photo at the MCG in the committee room. Mm. Uh, which I've seen a couple of times, and it's of, I think, a semi-final between Collingwood and Essendon at the MCG mm-hmm. in 1908, something like that. Right. It's unbelievable photo. If you ever have a chance to, because I don't know if you can visit that room on a tour to or something oh, like maybe, that. Oh, maybe, maybe if you do an MCG. But if you tour. ever get a chance, see that photo. And um, I was, I was invited into the room one day by one of the people at the MCC, and they said they like to play this game of spot the woman, is everyone's wearing a hat. Every single <laughs> yeah. person is wearing a hat. The men wear hats, the boys wear those, those schoolboys wear those sort of schoolboy caps, and the women have hats with flowers in them. It's everybody. It's amazing. Yeah. And so you just search, and I think I, the highest I've got to is about 13 or something. <laughs> Out of however... Well, there would be 100,000 people there. I mean, obviously not in that photo, wow, but yeah. yeah. And it's a great photo. It captures quite a lot of the ground. Um, it's just extraordinary. And there's something, it's a bit like, so the photo I've chosen of my mum, there's something about continuity, I think, um, which is why tradition matters, I think, so mm-hmm. much to people, mm-hmm. right? It's why, whilst I'm never complaining about the 2017 grand final, it's why I was disappointed in a way that I'm sure the players weren't, that we had to wear that jumper. Mm. Because that's not a jumper of continuity. What I wanted to see mm-hmm. was the jumper mm-hmm. that has continuity up on the dais collecting the... The trophy that's right? captured forever do you know what i mean yeah so i i feel like i still haven't witnessed that you, you know what i mean which sounds mm. churlish and it is like i'm perfectly happy with the way <laughs> that day played out but it is important it actually mm. matters to people i think will we witness it in 2019 um yeah we'll win the grand final by 50 goals and against 50 um, goals. Uh, all i think what they should do is get all <laughs> other seven teams to play against <laughs> us at once oh, yeah. and we'll like still win it oh no oh okay um, all yeah. Um, and the other photo is there's one in my house, actually, a photo of Flinders Street Station circa 1910, 1920. Oh. And that's amazing. And it's got a tram that's going to Richmond, mm. which is oh. why I got it. That just and, gave me goosebumps. Yeah, it's extraordinary. <laughs> and you see it and it's like mostly horse-drawn carriages, mm. a couple of cars. And you see a couple of buildings that sort of yeah. kind of can is identify. That whatever. Yeah. But the amazing thing is that Flinders Street Station just stands – It's huge mm. it's like it's mm. the it's the, the thing bacon. it's the hero of the piece whereas now it's kind of not because there's all this stuff around it but not then it's like it's the thing and there's like a little dog running across the road and and you see um the women in the, in the way they dressed with the hats and the sort of um dresses that uh, like the, yeah the full length dresses and all that sort of stuff and the guys are wearing the waistcoats and the um and the yeah. moustaches very particular yeah. it's just there's something about it um i'm a nostalgic by nature I'm very nostalgic. Really? Yeah, hugely. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, I still think we should have the VFL and I think we should be <laughs> like... The VFL's so lovely, isn't it? I, no, like, no, I mean the AFL shouldn't exist. Yeah, like That's I, what I, I mean. <laughs> it when Sydney went, when yeah, yeah, yeah. went to Sydney. Yeah, exactly. But I just mean when you get to go to the VFL, that that vibe... Yeah, there's something magic about that. ...is just what I feel like football should be. Yeah, yeah. I know there's not a lot of it's money. Really grass, <laughs> no, I yeah. think a lot of people feel that, though. Yeah. I think... And it's, you know, it's the one thing that I think the... Uh, although this will change, I think, very soon. But it's the one thing that the NRL, I think, still mm. has. 
mm. is they still do have those suburban grounds and then they're run down and it's not a great game day experience and all that. I get all that talk about it. But there is something magic about the fact that every now and again you have to go and play the Bulldogs at Belmore or you have to go and play the Tigers at Leichhardt and, and that, that still exists. I remember thinking um, probably 10 years ago, wouldn't it be great against, like, I don't know, Fremantle or something to play an AFL game at Punt Road? Wouldn't that be amazing? Oh, like, just to be able to, to do it. that. Um, <laughs> you know, arguably it would be less amazing now that the VFL team plays there all the time. Mm. But... At that time, yeah. Punt Road, I think the cricket club was still here. It was still, you know, um, basically just a training ground. And I would sit in that old um, rickety grandstand there yep. and I would look down and I would just conjure the ghosts of Jack Dyer oh, or whatever, right. like playing on this ground. And and I sort of feel the pain of being severed from that because I'm very nostalgic, but I, I feel that mm. sort of thing. So the photos that I love tend to be like that. They tend to be really nostalgic photos. Are you going to get on... Get behind the AFLW types. Oh, yeah. Well, of course I am. <laughs> yeah. I've met two of the players now. <laughs> yeah. And I was very excited about that. Have yeah. you already earmarked Aisha's your daughter? My daughter, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So told her that uh, in well, a few years' time, this is what Do you know, it's funny. Doing? Before she was born, I remember someone said, uh, do you know what you're having? And I said, I'm having a centre-half forward for Richmond. <laughs> well, <laughs> and they said, what if it's a girl? I said, I don't care. <laughs> They're going to play centre-half forward for Richmond. She was going to be the first female Prime Minister, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, she, she, she cried when she found out that Julie. <laughs> Yeah, but that was kind of by default at the time. Yeah, so. it didn't matter. Yeah. The funny, I think, how old would she have been? Like six? <laughs> so, Little. I know, it's ridiculous. Like, I remember Susan said to her, hey, actually, Australia got the first female prime minister and she cried. Like, <laughs> it's not the reaction I was expecting. <laughs> inspired anyway. by, yeah. we've been so inspired by you. Thank oh. you so much. Rana oh. and I absolutely awesome. have, have uh, been earmarking this and putting it in our doors, <laughs> waiting for you to come. Thank you so much, Waleed Ali, to, uh, to join us on Our Stripes and, and giving us a wonderful visual insight <laughs> into, your, uh, into your life and, and what makes you. So thank you for sharing. Thanks for having me. And tune in again. Uh, just uh, yeah, stay tuned for another edition of Our Stripes coming soon.